If you're like me, you love and miss that golden era of Christian music. From the Jesus music of the 70s, the monster vocalists of the 80s, and the creativity and risk-taking of the 90s and early 2000s. I'm Andy Chrisman, and for the past four decades, I was privileged to be smack dab in the middle of this crazy and beautiful thing that we call CCM. As a member of the group for him, I got to know so many great people with even greater stories. And I don't want to keep these stories to myself. That's why I created One Degree of Andy, so you can join me as I reminisce with my friends and colleagues. My hope is that as you experience these conversations, you'll go back and listen to that golden era of music and fall in love all over again, just like I have. This is the One Degree of Andy podcast. How does alternative rock fit into the Christian music narrative? Well, that is a fascinating question, and one that Michael Rowe of the groundbreaking band The 77s answers on this episode of One Degree. From being banned in Christian music stores, that's so crazy, to opening the door for bands like DC Talk and the Newsboys, and leaving behind an incredible body of music, I think you're really going to enjoy getting to know Michael Rowe. Seriously, you cannot tell the story of Christian music without bands like the 77s. A big thanks to so many of you who follow me on social media and send encouraging comments. Kent let me know he binged a bunch of the episodes on a long drive. Jacob commented that he especially loved the Wayne Watson, Stephen Yake, Russ Taff, and For Him episodes. And Joseph said that he loved the honesty and transparency of Rick Florian. Man, that was a really great episode. I promise I read every comment, and I want you to know you guys are the best. If you'd like to become a premium subscriber, just hit the link in the podcast description. Your generous support helps us keep the podcast going. Plus, you'll get exclusive content along the way, as well as early access to all new episodes. And it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Can you believe Christmas is right around the corner? And if you're planning on reading the story of Christ's birth to your family, I want to introduce you to the Christmas story. This is a beautiful hardbound storybook with compelling language and beautiful illustrations that lead you through the gospel accounts of the very first Christmas. And get this, there's also a QR code to stream the images and soundtrack to your TV. It's truly an immersive and beautiful experience. And I know this story firsthand because we've been reading it and performing it in my church, Church on the Move, for the past 20 years, and now it's available to you. You can learn more about it at readthechristmasstory.com. That's readthechristmasstory.com. I'm also going to drop a link in the episode description. And when you order, use the promo code Andy to get 10% off your order. I promise it'll become a new family tradition. Now, on to my conversation with Michael Rowe of the 77s. So in Christian music, there were a lot of different charts out there. So there was the There was the inspo chart, which was kind of that soft, you know, um, Christian music that was, you know, that grandma would love to listen to. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then there was there was contemporary or or adult AC, right, which was more of the main pop, you know, right down the line. Then there was alternative or Christian rock CCR uh, that was, I mean, maybe for him jumped up on that uh, on that chart Mm -hmm. every now and then. But 
really, you know, what For Him did and what bands like the 77s did didn't really cross paths a lot. We didn't play at the same time in festivals, same stages. Um, there were, it was like two different worlds within one world. And so I'm really excited to meet you today, Michael, and to talk about your career and kind of get to know you after, uh, you know, just really going back and listening to your music again and discovering it all over again. I'm excited to have this conversation because I want to know your life in CCM. And so welcome to the One Degree of Andy podcast, Michael Rowe of the 77s. Man, it's good to it's good to connect with you. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I heard Brent Bourgeois' interview, and I thought, well, I want to be on that. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like with uh, the roster of people that you've had so far, uh, you might need a sort of renegade village idiot type, you know, <laughs> character to come in and offset some of that. <laughs> well, I got to say, man, just uh, just going back and listening to the 77s over the last couple of weeks, I've enjoyed everything you guys have done even going back and watching uh reminding myself of, of the, the music videos that you made mm-hmm. um, i mean mercy mercy just blew my mind I, I i've kind of forgotten about that that song and uh just what guts it took to be yourselves in that environment and to preach the gospel in your own way and just i don't know i had su- i have such respect for you guys here one of the things that you know uh, and not not to disparage anybody else and for him, but I was always the one going, can we do something different? I mean, can mm-hmm. we like maybe try and go edgier, a little more alternative? Because our voices are going to bring it back towards the center. But I'm like, right. I would love to stretch out a little bit more. We never really did. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure our audience would have, would have, you know, followed us there. But man, I always just with a little bit of, you know, I don't know if it was, jealousy looking at what you guys were able to accomplish and some of the music you able guys were able to to produce and put together man mm-hmm. i just I, I just love what i've been listening to over the last couple of weeks well that's really a great thing to hear because i didn't know what you would think of our music and i've enjoyed listening to your music uh conversely because it kind of tells a story to me of how my career in christian music would have gone had uh, God not pushed me towards this other avenue left of center. Because in the 70s, before I got involved in 77s, I was doing very pop music. I had this little trio with these guys that sang like you guys did. And we were playing in all kinds of uh, pubs and pizza parlors and doing tight three-part harmony. You know, we do stuff like Simon and Garfunkel and the Beatles and Cat Stevens, uh, James Taylor, all that stuff. And I was really getting into that. Uh, I was excited. I was writing songs with these guys. And uh, the songs were a lot closer to what you guys ended up doing than what the 77s did. And uh, we were about to... uh, get some really great opportunities in that band but right in the middle of that god sort of entered into my life because i'd sort of slid off the path you know i was raised in church in a evangelical church my dad was totally into gospel music specifically white southern white gospel quartets and all of that like yeah statesman blackwood brothers and when i was 15 i was asked to join a group 
that had formed in this place called Bethany Bible College, which was an Assemblies yeah. of God college mm -hmm. in the Santa Cruz area. Yep. And these guys were all older than me. Some of them you might know the names of, like Roger Flessing, who ended up at uh, working for uh, Jim and Tammy Baker. A lot of these guys ended up working for the Bakers, actually. Wow. But uh, they formed this big group in 1969, and it was patterned after Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Chicago, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. I was 15 years old and really rocking, you know, and I was the best guitar player they could find, so I schlepped myself in there and we ended up doing things like opening for uh, Andre Crouch and the Disciples back wow. when they were just a fledgling group. They hadn't really been known yet. Uh, Danny Bell, uh, the oh, Archers, man. before the Archers even became the Archers in that way, their brother Gary, who was older, had a yeah. sort of a church group, you know. And uh, Oh, yeah, I just had Steve Archer on the show. Oh, that's great. Yeah, um, he's amazing. Well, he One was my a heroes. kid. Yeah, he was a kid when we were doing oh, all wow. And, uh, in fact, Gary Archer was the guy who put together uh, a record uh, for us to put out, you know, our first single. And we sold it at one of these uh, Assemblies of God Christ Ambassador Conventions. Yeah, I remember those. Fresno. And there was, we went up and played for, like, thousands of people. We were called upon to do the theme song. It was called The Now Life, you know. And uh, so we get up there and do it. And the guest speaker was Jimmy Swagger, of all people. Wow. Right? So we get up and play the song, and it's a raucous, pumping tune. You know, this is the now life. You know, we're up here. We walk off stage, and I'm underneath the, uh, you know, in the dressing room, and someone screams, you got to get out there and take a curtain call. They're all stamping and shouting. They're on their feet, right? This entire audience gave us a standing ovation. And we're up there, and I could see Jimmy Swaggered off to the side, just seething. Because when this was all over, he had to get up and preach against what his entire <laughs> audience had just what? done a standing O for. Wow. And, uh, of course, my parents didn't want me to be part of any of this, because these guys were older. They were all in college. Yeah. You know, and they had these radical political views. You know how the late 60s was. Mm -hmm. So I'd come home spouting all of this sort of rhetoric and they said we man we've got to get our kid out of, out of this band it's gonna we're losing him you know so uh we came up here to sacramento and played this big sort of uh, river raft thing and and with a bunch of these ccm artists that were soon to be big stars and my dad invited a pastor friend of his to come and sort of judge whether this was worthwhile for me to be doing or not and when it was all over he said you know mike he said that was really great entertainment, but you'll never be able to uh, uh, preach the gospel with this music. It just ain't going to happen. And of course, I went home totally dejected. I had to quit the group. And, uh, and that was kind of a turning point for me, because at that point, I thought, well, if I can't serve God with this music, which is what I wanted to do, I'm just going to go the other direction. So yeah. I spent several years veering off the path as most. Uh, or many young Christian men do. There wasn't really any role models for me in music at that time, other than maybe Larry Norman and maybe Randy Stonehill. But because they were coming from Southern California, uh -huh. it was harder to connect with them. They were older than I. And, yeah. and I saw that happening. Um, then I heard Phil Kagan. I thought, now that's something I can get into because he was a great guitar player. Yeah. Well, there wasn't, you know, unless unless uh, an artist kind of came your way where you were, 
uh, back in those days, or you went into a record store and just tried out a bunch of albums, you really didn't know who to like who to stand whose shoulders to stand on. You just kind of had to experiment until you found someone. It wasn't like later on, you know, 10, 15 years later when there's Christian radio and you can you can sample everything that Christian music is trying to throw out there. I mean, that's uh I mean that's the kind of the era I grew up in was you know I'm uh just start starting my career until the the late eighties, early nineties, you know, Christian radio was firmly established at that point. But sure. You know, uh, guys from that era and, you know, just because you're a little bit older than me that, you know, talking to people like Brian Duncan and and Steve Archer and Brent Bourgeois that, you know, were just like there wasn't a lot to draw from other than the people that were kind of in our area and that were touring out in California. Sure. Well, I mean, I can't say with all certainty whether if I had been a teenager 10, 15 years later whether the world and the allure of sin would have been any less potent. Yeah. What I do know is that had there been groups like the one that I was in and others like it, I would have had less excuse to at least be doing music outside of that arena because, you know, uh, I guess I ended up becoming the very thing that I needed when I was 16. Mm. And I didn't design that. That was something God did. He called me to it. Uh, at the time when, when this was all starting to happen, I didn't really have any way to understand what it was going to be until decades later. And now I look back at it and I go, there it is. You know, now the kids that were watching you do this thing, hopefully they were inspired to take their faith more seriously, maybe take their music more seriously, or both. And, uh, so now I'm grateful for what happened, but at the time, you know, I didn't really know what it was going to be about. Yeah. So when did you make that next step? So you, you kind of, you come home and your dad's like, you can't like, this, this is not going to work. What, what happened yeah, well, then? You know, I, I guess I was around a junior in high school at the time I finished high school, went to college, you know, majored in psychology. I thought I might end up being a therapist. I don't know, you know. But uh, meanwhile, I was playing in rock and roll bands on the weekends to make money and to uh, be in a band and play music, you know. We did Top 40 for a few years. And then I got out of that. And shortly after that is when I formed that that band I was telling you earlier about with the guy singing, you know. Uh Really got into vocals, harmony, we would do things like take a song. There's a song by the group Genesis before they sort of went real commercial. And it's called Entangled. I think it's on the mm-hmm. Trick and the Tail album. Yep, I know that song. Very, very detailed and delicate. And there's three-part harmony in the chorus where Phil Collins harmonizes with himself. We took that thing apart and I learned every little thing. Our big thing was to copy the record exactly and get every guitar part perfect. And we would go inside these little clubs, you know, and people were used to hearing hits and we would all of a sudden launch into that and the whole room would fall under a spell. Yeah. And it was, it was like, man, this is what I want to do. This, this kind of singing, this kind of playing, it was uh, very inspiring to me. And, and their voices, we all sound like brothers, you know, when you have a family blend, like the yeah. Beach Boys and other yep. families, where mm-hmm. it's just this perfect blend. And it was so seductive and so amazing. But in the back of my mind, uh, I kept thinking, you're really not going in the right direction, you know, with your life. And how are you going to go into music seriously, big time, 
and have God be either completely absent or just a footnote or, you know, you're haunted by Christ, but he's not at the center. And uh, I ended up making a phone call to uh, one of the guys that was in that band back when I was uh, 15. And he was a real serious Christian, very devoted, almost like a like a missionary type guy, you know, where his whole life was about Jesus and nothing else. And uh, I knew it was a risk making that phone call because I knew he was going to challenge me. And that's exactly what he did. And after that conversation, I started getting this really uh, intense feeling that I didn't understand. And it was building in me and God was really dealing with me in a way that was very personal, very sort of intense. And uh, all of this led to a kind of sort of Old Testament biblical encounter with the living God. You know, I wasn't up on a mountain. I was on a train bridge. But I went out there and this thing happened that I can't, I can't dis- even describe. I can only tell you that it was so profound and so powerful. And I was terrified. I didn't know quite what to do. And then the words were spoken, you need to go to Sacramento, to this church up there called Warehouse Ministries, which I'd known about. That was, that pastor had started this church, the guy who told me you'll never be able to use rock and roll for no the way. gospel. Wow. His wife started, he was a missionary too. His yeah. wife started a Bible study while he was on the road preaching in Africa and all these places. And it grew and it grew and it grew until it got to a point where he came home from one of his crusades and she says, you need to give this road life up and come and minister to these kids because we can't fit them anymore. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. So he started this church in a warehouse, you know, sort of a tilt up building. Yeah. Yeah. They started having concerts every Saturday night of contemporary Christian artists, all the big names. And I mean, all of them, if you went down the list of everyone who was on Maranatha, uh, you know, and later Benson and all the labels, all those groups and artists came through. So that's where God called me to go. And uh, I couldn't, I didn't really know what was going on up there. I kind of had a vague idea. So when you asked to come up, will you come up to work or just be a part of the church? Like, how did you support yourself? Just go, just go there. uh, It's nothing specific about, except that there was a specific ministry of thing. Yeah waiting for me there. And I didn't want to go because I was perfectly happy in San Jose with my family and my friends and my band and all the accolades and fun I was having. But uh, without going into too much of it, because it's a long, long story, I did eventually end up there. Mm-hmm. They put me to work uh, producing a radio program that they had called Rock and Religion. And uh, I don't know if you remember it, but it was on over 350 stations all over the country and around the world. Yeah. Including major rock stations like WNEW in New York. This thing was a big hit because it took the place of the old time gospel hour and things <laughs> like that. Our radio used yeah. to have to run religious programming. Right. That's right. So uh, I got in the middle of that and we started, you know, I learned how to do radio production. I eventually became the announcer, I became the producer, and then we went off to another sort of direction where we started interviewing secular artists. And uh, what we were looking for was the spiritual influences on rock music, getting them to talk about it Mm -hmm. without being overt, you know, like we had to sort of make it look like we were doing just an average rock radio interview with them. Right. But 
subtly we would turn the conversation towards the spiritual realm. Not talking about Jesus, just getting them to sort of admit that maybe some of what they were doing was having an effect beyond just entertainment, that mm -hmm. it was having a spiritual impact, getting them to talk about their personal beliefs, their religions, if they had any. And we ended up having Pete Townsend of The Who. We had Kerry Livgren on there wow. right after he became a Christian. Yeah. The Grateful Dead, The Doors, after Golly. Jim was gone. Um, oh, my gosh. It was, it was an unbelievable experience. And, and how receptive were they to talking about spiritual, quote-unquote, spiritual things? Um, like, for the most part, was everybody in? If we framed the conversation correctly, they were more than willing to talk about it. Yeah. I don't think anyone ever... Because of our interviewer, Mary, the woman, she was the wife of that pastor, um, she had a way of being able to draw them into the conversation without uh -huh. really knowing what it is we were going after. Wow. And uh, it was subtle, but it was very effective. And this was all going great until the FCC did what they call deregulation, which means that now uh, these stations could sell uh, commercial time and not have to run religious programming anymore. So when that happened, that was the death knell for the show because we lost half of our stations literally overnight. Wow. wow. And uh, so, you know, rather than sit around and wallow in that um, disappointment, we built a recording studio at the church. And it wasn't long before Charlie Peacock showed up. Mm. He'd been living in the area and yeah. some found out about this church he had just recently sort of uh renewed his faith in christ um and uh he started coming around and before you know it there he was in the studio with us he uh, we put him to work as a producer and we did our first album there with uh steven souls who was in the alpha band i don't know if you remember those guys but he i toured, don't yeah he toured with bob dylan with t-bone burnett david mansfield and himself oh, and so he was the first producer that we used and uh -huh. studio started attracting big names, you know, people that were Christians that heard about this, wanted to come and record there or be part of it. So for 10 years, we had quite a scene and that's where Charlie did his first album, Lie Down in the Grass. Okay. Played guitar on there with Jim A. Begg, Jimmy A. Yeah. Uh, Brent Bourgeois started hanging around too. Uh -huh. Because he had his band Bourgeois Tag, and we were all friends. Right. It wasn't long before Brent got involved, and it just turned into this really beautiful thing. So out of that, uh, the seventy sevens emerged, and we we got our first. We formed a little record label, and uh, we wanted it to be a secular label, but we couldn't really pull that off yet. So we went to Word Records, and they gave us our own label, our own <laughs> little sort of thing called Exit Records. Yeah. So what was the? I mean. If you go back and uh, Sticks and Stones was the first record, right? No, that was Rick? the fourth. Oh, okay. We've done three albums before that. Okay. So, but, but still, that, the type of music that you guys were doing, um, what was the, uh, uh, what was the, what am I trying to say here? What, what was the audience for that? I mean, what, how, like, what, was it, was it fringe stuff at that point, or was there really an audience for where you guys were taking your music? Well, when we first started, our audiences were the local high schools. We would set up yeah. at lunchtime in the quad and play for unsuspecting teenagers. <laughs> and yeah. uh, in 1979 and 80, it was... Because punk. if you're good, I mean, if you're good at what you're doing... Well, it was punk know. rock, it was new wave. Yeah. And so all of my stuff that I brought in with all that pop vocalizing went 
you know, it was just gone. And I had to turn the guitar up, unlearn everything I learned and play with just full on brash abandon, you know, downstroking three chords at a time and yelling over it. Right. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was a lot of fun, but it was sort of difficult to come off of that sort of highly skilled seventies rock and pop and go into this thing where it's almost like you're starting over like a beginner. Huh. So we just poured every ounce of energy that we could muster into our performances. And we got known as a band that took no prisoners. We were very intense. The first album is kind of all over the place. There's a little bit of uh, Tom Petty, Elvis Costello, a little bit of uh, Deep Purple, Hard Rock, Zeppelin. We just threw in the kitchen sink. Yeah. Everything, everything we could think of, we did. And it turned into almost like a workshop which is what our band has always been you know it's like it's us sort of having fun experimenting because we never were taken seriously by any of the labels we were on so we were free to do what whatever we wanted so what year would that have been like what's well, the time the frame first, of that first album came out in 1982 okay uh word distributed that and then it wasn't long before amy grant had her big success mm -hmm. on word and that's when the they combined forces with A&M Records to have a sort of a secular distribution for Word Records. Yeah, I remember all that. And so our little label got put into that, and we thought this is great. Now you know we we hired a a private or a a private like promoter, a kid you know who was uh -huh. a radio promoter. He got our second album all the way up to number one on all the college charts, all up and down the East Coast. So we could have gone back there and toured and had a big hit. But the problem is the record wasn't available in any of the stores where they were hearing the music. Oh, you know? man. It was in Christian bookstores, uh, you know, with those elderly women, you know, yeah. the gamers, <laughs> we used to yeah. call them. And they would, yeah. have, they would hide the record underneath the counter because there was a photograph of me laying on the ground, kind of like Iggy Pop, you know, yeah. doing some sort of terrible thing. You know, I used to have this sort of <laughs> epileptic seizure routine i used to do <laughs> i would flop around like a fish and then just go dormant yeah and it looked like i died right there on stage um that was the album cover and there were some lyrics that were a little bit questionable you know a uh, word got around that the lyrics were obscene so before you know we were the band that kids were buying this record and hiding it under the bed from their oh Christian. my gosh so i had I, I i had people in my family that you're describing right now Mm -hmm. Was that if it was a little bit, a little bit questionable, a little bit too much on the edge, they weren't allowed to listen to it because Christian music was supposed to be this safe space right. where, you know, that that didn't get too rowdy, didn't get, you know, didn't ask any questions, right? Mm -hmm. um, didn't didn't travel too far outside of the church walls where they went to church every week, and uh, yeah, I mean, I can I can totally see how that would be something that would happen with your music well at the time we were devastated because we wanted the success we wanted to be on the cover of ccm yeah we wanted to get the interviews and everything and did that ever make you want to compromise though did it make you want to go hey let's tone back yeah, the next, yeah, the next we record played ball. we would have played ball you know we would have done anything to to get to be successful the labels wouldn't let us they told us you can't be that you'll never be that in fact wasn't john still the guy who ran CCM. CCM, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. I had a conversation with him. I said, you put everyone else on the cover. Why won't you put us on the cover? He just laughed in my face. He says, you'll never be on the cover of CCM. I will never do it. And I go, what's wrong with you? I said, We're, we need that. He says, no, you don't. He said, that, that's the last thing you need. And you need to be who you are.
because interesting. And once I got some hindsight, I got away from this. I realized that, you know, being hit under the bed by those kids, that was the best thing that could happen to us because (laughs) that created a fan base that was so loyal that here we are to this day, you know, going on, uh, it's over almost 45 years ago. Those same kids that bought those records are still buying our records today. Wow. Because of what we meant to them at the time. You know, I've had more than one person come up to me and say, you saved me from Amy Grant. <laughs> and I said, well, we didn't get into we this. saved you from for him. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, uh, I never got into this thing to save anyone from Amy Grant. I wanted to see them saved from sin. Yeah. But, but really what they were saying is I was allowed to be myself when I mm. saw what we were doing. I fit in all of a sudden because a lot of kids, even let's face it, when you grow up in church or even if you start getting dragged to church as a teenager, fitting in is what it's all about. And if you don't feel like you fit in uh, to a church environment, you are going to leave that environment. Well, it's bands like you that that set the set the stage for, I mean, let's uh, DC talk or Jars of Clay for. Cademan's call for for yeah. artists that weren't following the normal, right? You know, what what was played played on AC radio to be able to have an audience that was outside of the peripheral of what was selling, but to find an audience because it was good, and that's that's the thing. If it's good, people will find it. If it's exceptional, people will continue to buy it, right? And that's. That's what I, again, that's what I go back to your music because I listen to it again after all these years and go, it's just like, I would listen to this right now. I mean, it's that good, you know, because I grew up, I'm a child of the eighties. I grew up on, you know, I, I hear influences in your music of the, I, my, the first band that came to mind was psychedelic Furs, which mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of the cure. Um, you know, there were, there were all these, these bands that were just left of center, even in pop music sure. in the eighties that were like, like that's just. Oh, the Smiths. Yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, all those guys in the bands you mentioned, like, uh, you know, uh, DC talk, all of them have come to me and thanked me and told me they were huge fans and that mm. it inspired them to do what they do. So sometimes, you know, you have to be the guy with the, the sky, you know, the sickle, <laughs> you have to be the yeah. one to blaze a trail, you know? Yeah. So yes, we didn't have the success. But what we did do is got a lot of people to form bands and have the success, which is perfectly fine with me now that I'm old and wretched. I don't even care anymore. You know, there was a time where all that stuff meant so much. And when you get older, you realize that none of that stuff really matters. What really matters is, you know, were you true to your calling and to yourself, the person God made you to be? And that was our number one message in the end. Tell me how the 77s got started. So. You, you know, you met the guys where you, you sang the harmonies and, you know, and and you started, you know, you, you're, you've got your studio now in, in, in Sacramento and you're starting to make music. Yeah. When I first got to Sacramento, when I obeyed the call and went up there, the very first thing that happened to me before the radio show or any of that stuff is they said, we're having these CCM concerts every weekend. We need a band to go out to the schools locally and represent what it is we're trying to do you know uh would you like to be in such a group and i said my only caveat is it's got to be good i'm not going to be in a crap band 
Okay. And they said, no, we wouldn't do it if it was bad. So they asked me, they asked Jimmy Abeg, uh, Jan, uh, Eric Voles and Mark Toodle and Mark Proctor. And we scratched it, threw it together from scratch and call ourselves the scratch band. <laughs> uh, and that's when we started playing those lunch times. That was in the fall of 1979. So the record on word didn't come out until 1982. Yeah. So we spent three or four years just slogging those high schools. We played youth authorities. We played Lompoc federal prison. We played churches. We played bars, uh, any place where we could get a crowd. We went up to San Francisco and played at the Mabuhay gardens, which was the premier punk club. And, uh, that was quite an experience. Were you, you know, able to make a living during this time doing all that? Was I that... was working for the church okay. at the time, uh, producing the radio show. So we all had jobs at the church while we were doing the band. And then your, how was your message being received? Like, especially going to some of these punk clubs and going to some of these places that weren't schools. How was it that your message was received? Were you like, were you welcomed into those, you know? Uh, with all those other bands and those promoters and and the people that were coming um well we did our set and people either liked it or they didn't they either paid attention or they didn't um our best audiences oddly enough were california youth authorities huh. where we had a captive audience yeah you know and we'd go up there and they would just lose their minds because we were rocking harder than probably anything else they'd seen um we did okay. Yeah. You know, some places we did better than others. Yeah. Say that for the most part, we were rocking so hard that you couldn't deny the passion and commitment. You know, we even went as far as to quote Bible verses in between songs and some of the rowdier clubs, which was probably not the smartest thing to do. But, <laughs> you know, we were young. We did what we thought we were supposed to do. And it sure. was, it had its impact or, or not, you know. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, uh, it went over. Yeah, I'd say it went over. We got better as a band. By the time we put our second album out on, on Word with A&M Distribution, I would say we were ready for the big time. At that point, when that record was climbing up the charts on college radio, we could have gone out on any major tour and done very, very well. The band just got better and better and better through the 80s. And then what did you do touring-wise? Like, where? What was your touring life like once that um, second record came out? mainly regional and west coast we went and played the cornerstone festival we played some of the other christian festivals uh we didn't tour as much as i toured with charlie peacock because he had he managed to uh score some more secular uh booking agency like fbi and people like that we eventually hooked up with the bill graham organization in san francisco uh bill was still booking the fillmore and and places like that and he became very interested in our little label and wanted to manage it. So uh, we started getting more and more secular interest and eventually wound up with a distribution deal with Island Records. Oh, wow. Um, in fact, our album came out one week before the Joshua Tree. And uh, unfortunately, Island was just a little boutique label owned by Chris Blackwell. It was distributed by Atlantic, Warners, Atco. And you two had the success because all of those branches were able to get behind them with their machinery, the press, all of that, because their success was so big, Little Island couldn't really handle it. So yeah. they had to draw on the larger corporation 
to even service it. And I've gone on record to say that have the Joshua Tree come out on CBS or Warner's properly, they probably would have sold two to three times as many. Mm. But, you know, they were loyal to Chris and to Island Records. Our little record came out and sank like a stone. I mean, <laughs> the entire staff of Island left the office. There was only 30 people working in the office there in, in Manhattan. And when you 2 came on the road with Joshua Tree, they just all left to go hang out with them and, and try to support them because it took every bit of machinery to to hold that kind of success together. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. So us being on island for five minutes uh, did us no good because you could now you couldn't find our record either in the secular stores or the Christian bookstores. And we have this wonderful album on island records that none, none of our fans could find. So it ended up being a bust. And the same thing happened to Charlie Peacock and the other artists on our label. Um, so it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. We got reviewed in Rolling Stone. We got a great review. We had reviews and interviews with Interview Magazine, that big Andy Warhol oversized magazine that used to come out. A um, lot of secular press. But, you know, we ended up playing, because we were working with Bill Graham, we played the Fillmore. We played, we could go into any club being island recording artists and headline the club anywhere we wanted to. We would just call the club and say, Ireland recording artists coming through. And they would just give us a headlining spot right on the, you know, they, they wanted to be in on the success if we were going to break. Yeah. But it, it just didn't happen. And how does that, what does that do to you at that point when you, you, you make the record you want to make, it's a great record. And I mean, I, I, I for him's been there at this, at this juncture too, where you just go, what do we have to do? Like, you know, what, why is this not working the way we thought it was going to work? Like, what do you do at that point? What was, what was the band's mentality? Were you just like full steam ahead or do we go back and try and refigure what our, our roadmap is? I think it demoralized us to the point where the first 77s group ended up splintering hmm. because uh, Jan, our bass player ended up managing Charlie Peacock. So Charlie decided to move to Nashville and sign with uh, Sparrow. Uh-huh. They sort of rolled out the red carpet for him. Once he did that, it wasn't long before Jim Maybeg moved out there. Then Jan Bulls moved out there and left our group. Uh, Aaron Smith, our drummer, ended up moving out there as well. So I had to start over in the ashes of this thing. Was uh, there any? Was there any like draw for you to go to Nashville? You just felt like you're yes. going to stand your ground fact, there. Charlie, yes. Charlie Peacock offered me a lucrative solo deal with the label he was starting with Sparrow. Yeah. And I looked it over and I said, man, the money's great. Charlie's really into this, but. Cause it would have um, worked. I mean, I, in hindsight, I look back and just listening, what you were able to do vocally, nobody else in Christian music could do that. I mean, you were, you were, I, you were in a unique place. If I had made that move at the time, I'm, I'm certain that I would have found my place in nashville in possibly both industries i even sat with billy ray hearn and and mike bland all those guys looked them right in the face they were ready to play ball but i we had, my wife and i just had our baby daughter oh. i didn't want to raise my daughter away from her grandparents her cousins her aunts uncles i didn't want to drag my family to nashville on the hope that all of it would just work out for me right um, I also had a deep 
commitment to the new 77s that I was rebuilding with with new guys, with Mark Harmon and Dave Linhart and Aaron Smith temporarily. Eventually, we got mm -hmm. Bruce Spencer. Um, I felt like we had a lot more to say, and I knew that I wouldn't be able to say it uh, if I moved. And, you know, I, Charlie didn't take the 77 seriously at that point. He kind of said, you know, why drag it out for a few more albums? Let's just, you know, let it go at a high point. Come out here and I'll, I'll make this thing happen for you. And I just felt in my spirit that it wasn't the right thing to do. And I have absolutely no regrets now. Yeah. Had, it would have been the right move for me professionally. Yeah. But personally and musically, I am very happy with having stayed behind because of not only the music we made, but the impact that we continued to have in the wake of our initial sort of blast. Well, you know, there's, there's something, I hate to interrupt here, but there's something about moving to Nashville, and I say this with all respect to my friends that live there and have great careers there, that it feels like you're, you go there to play the game. If that makes sense. Like you kind of give yourself over to go, okay, well, I'm just going to get in that meat grinder there. And because that's where you got to go if you want a better chance of success. And I always, I never lived in Nashville. I always felt we, we lived down in the South, um, Mobile, Alabama for a little while, Orlando for a little while. I've been in Tulsa the last almost 20 years now. Uh, and I've never felt like I had to be in Nashville because there's something about, you know, you don't get, you kind of can do things your own way. Mm -hmm. And you, you don't get drawn into that. I don't know. I, I say I say it's a meat grinder. That's probably the not the best way to say it. Maybe the way the sausage is put together. You know, mm -hmm. you can kind of stay. You can st stay away from that a little bit and and come up with something that maybe is a little bit more your own. Well, again, this would have happened thirty years ago. Yeah. Nashville has changed somewhat now with the advent of guys like Jack White coming into there and building a cottage industry around himself and other people like that. I would say that there might be now maybe more room for guys like me to sure. flourish versus the early 90s when things were, were still very different. And I never felt like I fit into the Nashville thing. I've got more friends there than I do here. And when I go out there, I can get a lot of work done. I've, I've done tours in and out of there uh, i've done sessions there i've done a lot of stuff that i would have been doing had i moved but i also look at some of my peers and other friends that moved out there and not all of them uh, accomplished that much more than i did in fact some of them far less um it really depends on who you hook up with yeah. what your circle of influence is with your friends and whether you're in the touring club or whether you're in the studio scene whether you're in the writers you know i probably would have dabbled in all of it and gotten by pretty well yeah uh, i would hope that i would have but who's to say my life could have crashed and burned out there instead of crashed and burned out here <laughs> uh, i made a lot of mistakes i i went down some dark roads here but god has been faithful to me mm. and brought me back every time and uh Things are solid now. You know, it took me a lot of years to learn some hard lessons. But uh, again, I have no regrets because my daughter got to grow up with her family. Um, I got to do more, some of the best music I think I ever did. I look at that early 80s stuff as sort of the seminal beginning of it. But the stuff that I'm really 
that I'm proud of that I really relate to is all the stuff I've made since that time. So, and it's continued to have that same kind of impact on, uh, you know, now that we don't have teenage kids anymore as our audience, our audience has grown up with us. Most of them are grandparents. Yeah. And it's interesting how a lot of them have lost their faith over the years, or it's either watered down to where it's almost meaningless, or they become atheists. Uh, some of them have become, uh, oh gosh, it's all over the map. The one thing that remains constant is that they are still rabid fans of ours, which means that we continue to have a lyrical, spiritual influence upon yeah. all of them in spite of whatever direction they've gone in. And I, that brings me a lot of joy because I feel like there's not too many artists that that are known as Christians and, and people know that you are. You know, we've tried to hide it and it always went before <laughs> us and followed after us. Yeah. And what that showed me is that, you know, God prepares that path for you. If that's what he's called you to do, you don't have to say or do a whole lot of anything. All I wanted to do is do excellent work, which is something you brought up, is that have a high standard for your art, a high standard. We were learning how to make good records, great records, you know, write great songs. Um, they didn't have to be about Jesus, but inevitably people knew that it was in spite of, I could write about anything. Yeah, and that's, and that's what to me is worth you get 20, 30 years down the road and you can look back and be so proud of what mm -hmm. you did back then and, and listen to it without regret because you didn't compromise and you, you did the music that you knew you wanted to do. And I, I think, man, I think gift, uh, music is a real gift from God. I, I, th I think it's programmed in all of us because music speaks to us more than I think anything else in creation. There's something about music that unites us all together. And, you know, you talk about people who, where fans are in music, maybe that have lost their way or moved on to different beliefs in their life. But we can all come back to these songs. We can all come back to these moments. You know, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a Taylor Swift fan, but I've had some friends that have gone to the shows and they, they're just like, you know, it's amazing to see 30,000 people in one place that know every word to every song or completely bought in to what she's doing. And it's a uniting of all these different, you know, all these different people of age groups and walks of life that that's what our music has done too. We, we feel it too as our band is that as our audience has gotten older, they're continuing to go back and wherever they are in life and hear those songs again. And probably the same as you do, we get messages from those people on social media that say, you know, it's been a really tough 10 years of my life. But I went mm -hmm. back and listened to, you know, your walk on album and I was reminded of, you know, who God is and what he means to me and, and that, that journey in my life. And just thank you again for that music. So, you know, I'm sure you're getting those messages as well from, from fans that are just like, I'm just so glad that I was introduced to that music when I was 16, when I was 18, when I was 22. Yes. Um, that started early on. I was the guy who ended up answering all the fan mail and we got it in buckets in the eighties. Wow. And yeah. I answered every single one personally. And that's one thing I miss about that era is that that personal response thing that, that we did, that's the thing that cemented that fandom for life because 
you know, the person not only got an autograph or just some signature, they got someone who was right there, you know, for them being personal, answering their questions. I remember I used to get letters like that when I'd write to record companies when I was yeah. a kid. I was the kid that would write all these letters complaining about stuff. And, and anytime I got a, a letter, personal letter back from Warner Brothers or any of those labels, I would frame it or something because it was like, yeah, man, they really care, you know? Yeah, they really heard me. They, were, they, they actually me. took part of their life and responded to me personally. Yes. They actually read my name and, mm -hmm. and, and read what I had to say. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah, there is not a day goes by where I don't get a message on Facebook or, or somewhere from someone saying the very things you just said. And I know you get a lot of that yourself. Uh, and it's, it's humbling. It really is. It really is. And people keep that stuff. Right. Every letter, I guarantee you, every letter that you sent back, somebody has that still somewhere. And oh, I've signed it, some of them multiple times. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I posed for the photographs. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. It's uh, so, so tell me what you're doing now. I mean, uh, I, I, I kind of watch what you're doing online. It seems like the band's still doing some things here and there. And like, tell me what, what is the future? What, what's the present? What's the future of Michael Rowe in the 77s? Um, well, you know, I've toured a lot over the last 20 years to make a living. Uh, I, we formed a group, uh, called the lost dogs. I don't know if you're familiar with that uh -huh. group. Oh yeah. Terry Taylor and Derry Doherty, uh, Gene Eugene was in it. And then when he passed, uh, Steve Hindelong, uh, mm -hmm. got in there. Uh, yeah. we've done several albums. We toured a lot. I toured with Derry as a duo called Kerosene Halo, which I really loved, uh, 77s continued to play and tour up till about maybe five or six years ago we slowed down and when covid hit uh our drummer bruce spencer called me up in a panic he just goes dude we've got to get online we've got to get on youtube and start playing live uh and taking tips because we're gonna you know i'm gonna sink i'm gonna go under and i'm going oh my gosh i've always been notoriously camera shy unless i was doing <laughs> something really stupid you know yeah i feel the same and, way yeah. you know what i mean i don't want to uh -huh. be on camera and i just i went no no this is my worst nightmare but out we went we bought all these cameras we got professional lighting we we set up a studio in his living room he's got a recording studio you know adjacent to it and we said all right we have to have the same kind of quality that 77s are known for here because if we're going to do this, it has to look better and sound better than everybody else. Because you remember during that time, everyone was sitting behind a mic with a guitar yep. or a keyboard, yeah. begging for money. You know, I mean, we all freaked out. I'm sure you did. Everybody freaked out. It was like... There I was goes working for churches at the time. Mm -hmm. I'm working for churches that are trying to figure out how do we, how do we keep our congregation from uh, you know, me, it was, it was completely disappearing. Yeah, it was unbelievable, and no one saw it coming. And it was like mm -hmm. out of nowhere, we're th all thrust into this really weird situation. So I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. All right, so uh, we got a friend of ours named Chris Harrelson to produce, run cameras, do sound, do lighting, do all this stuff. And the three of us just started, and we started live, which was a big mistake. Um, we were doing it simulcast to Facebook Live and YouTube. And as you know, anytime you, you marry pro audio with pro video, unless you've got a, a crew that really has this thing together, everything is going to go wrong. And everything did. Oh, but man. People loved the show. They started sending us 
hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And I'm going, <laughs> this is amazing. Now I like being on camera. So uh, after several weeks, we, we bottomed out all of our own songs. We have, you know, between myself and the Lost Dogs and all the other groups I'm in, uh, you know, we eventually played all those songs and then we started doing cover songs. And now I'm back in the seventies again with my guys doing those vocals again and all that. It's like, oh man, we ended up doing 120 shows nonstop every week. And, uh, there's, of course there's fans out there that, that tabulate and keep track of all the songs, how many times we played them by the end of the run. Now we're doing reruns. It's in syndication <laughs> <laughs> while we're doing a new record, but, uh, uh, we ended up playing almost 1,000 unique songs. In other words, without repeating, we did repeat some, but imagine learning 1,000 songs within three years and playing them all live on the spot without any rehearsal. And that was another thing. No rehearsal. We did it like wow. Deep Garden. We did it once. Wow. I mean, run it down. If there, if there were some complicated changes, we'd you know frantically run it down like minutes before we did the show. But as far as having a rehearsal, it never happened. Uh, I'm telling you what, I'm exhausted just talking about it. <laughs> but I will say the fans have been there for us, man. They've been sending in the money. That got us through financially. Mm. Wow. And uh, it's not like anything else I've ever done. I mean, I've never done anything with that much dedication and that much time commitment ever. So that was quite a learning experience. Wow. And so what's the future? What, yeah, what's the future for you guys? What's the future for you? We're doing a new 77s album, first one of new material in, in over 20 years. Oh, man. Uh, we've been recording uh, basics for the last 10 years and just for various reasons, just never finished anything. So finally, we said enough's enough. The fans are just pissed all the time. Like, when are you guys going to put out some new music? And so I said, all right, fine. So uh, we've got about three albums, seven songs each. So it's going to be seven, then seven. Then I guess we'll put the S and we'll call it seven seventy seven. <laughs> so there's like 21 songs that we're working on right now. And uh, it, again, as always, the music is all over the map. Everything from rock to pop to you name it. There isn't any one style, but uh, it's going to be good. That I will tell you. That's the one goal we have is that great songwriting great vocals, great guitar playing, great rhythm section. Um, I hope the fans like it. I, they probably will complain. You know, the rock guys are going to want more rock. Uh, the, the people that like other stuff are going to want something else. But, you know, we just do what we do. That's great. Anything else you want to talk about? I think that's a, man, that's a really good run of conversation there. We could talk all day, uh, Andy, but, uh, it's been great. I, I'm really glad that you had me on this thing. Uh, it's nice to be able to do something like this with someone like you. And uh, I, I can't believe that I only just heard that thing you did with Brent and John Anderson. It is, you know, it's amazing. As well as that thing did on the radio, it is, I, there are people that like, they know, they have a, a good understanding of Christian music, have never heard it. And you know, it's possible I heard it. Now, when did it come out? Mm, 90, 99, 2000, maybe? Okay, so maybe it's 2000. been over 20 years. Mm -hmm. It could be that I might have heard it in passing and just overlooked it. 
I'd put that thing on. And first of all, the song is gorgeous. The track, oh, yeah. the way that loping sort of rhythm and how those, yeah, the, it's all brand, lines, man. yeah, the loping lines underneath, mm -hmm. you know, and then when, and, and your voice, it's like, oh my gosh, it's like these vocals are killing me. And then when, when Anderson comes on, I just went, oh my God, <laughs> I, it's like, well, first of all, it's tapping into something that, you know, I went and saw Yes back in the early 70s. I saw the Close to the Edge tour. I saw the Topographic Oceans tour. Wow. And particularly that, that Topographic Oceans thing, because it was a very spiritual record, I had as close to a religious experience as I think anyone could have at a rock concert when I saw that. I mean... I, I was convinced that I, someone dosed me with LSD, even though they did not. And the girl I was with, uh, she didn't know anything about Yes. And she was so gobsmacked, she couldn't speak. I mean, she was just sitting there. I was watching her. It was like watching someone in an old-time Pentecostal church revival. You know, We were transported out of our bodies. And when the show was over, I tried to say, gee, wasn't that great? What did you think? She said, don't talk to me. Don't. Wow. She wouldn't permit me to talk to her all the way home because... The, the experience was so powerful. You know, that's, uh, you go to, you know, me growing up in church and, you know, worship kind of being a big part of my whole story and then getting into Christian music and, you know, just kind of living my life in that realm. I didn't really start going to secular shows until like right after I was married in the early nineties. Like I never went to a secular concert just because it was kind of frowned upon and I listened to the radio and I was a fan of all that stuff. Like I'm a, I'm a 70s and 80s music nerd. Like, I know so much of that stuff. But yeah. I just never felt comfortable going to the concerts because of the religious home that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. But when I got married, my wife and I started going to shows. I was astounded at the worship that was happening. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. The hands are up. People are singing, moving around. I'm like, this is worship. What is this? And it took me a long time to realize that, man, music in and of itself is a gift from God. And you, yes. you mentioned it earlier about bringing these artists into your radio show, these secular artists and rock artists that you would you would go down a spiritual path and they'd be open to talking about it if you if you you know introduced it the right way. Because I I believe that if you spend any time with music, you understand there's a spiritual element to it, and all of us are just trying to figure out what that is. You know, sure. those of us that that have found Christ, we understand and we can go down that path of going, okay, this is what music is created for. But those that haven't found Christ are, they're always, they're feeling it. They know it's there. They know it's a gift from somewhere else. It's mystical to them. Mm -hmm. And some of them can just push it so far that it, I think it trans, transcends the boundaries of, you know, of just this earthly suit that we're in and you feel something else. And sure. so bands like, yes, guys like John Anderson are super spiritual. You know, because they've chased this thing down so far and understand that this is a, you know, this is something well beyond what we could ever comprehend. And then it transfers to us. Yeah. We have spiritual experiences, even when it's not, you know, Christian music per se. And I just think that's why, man, I, there's, I, there's such a brotherhood to me of, of guys that even though we didn't cross paths and we weren't playing the same festivals and tours, we can share a lot of the same memories and stories because of what music did to transform us and our journeys and how we're like, we're never going to give this up. I mean, this is, this is a big, this is life to us music yes. and, 
and creating music and finding that next thing to do with music and where can it go now? Because if, if God is endless and music comes from God, then music must be endless in my logic. So let's keep chasing it. Let's keep running down the idea. That was the main motivation for me to return to my faith when I had walked away from it, because I knew that once I was face to face with God, I was the last thing I would ever want to miss out on was the music that would be in his presence. Hmm. I just thought if it's this good here, you know, it, it was a way for God to show me a part of what he was about. And, uh, uh, you know, it's like a, it's sort of a language above speech. It bypasses the intellect and goes right to your heart. Um, and this is why I was disappointed when I heard that you guys had a little trouble with John Anderson on your record with some Christian radio people. And I thought, you know, it's really sad that, that they would miss the point of the fact that that gift, like you say, and the sound of his voice alone, there's something in it that God is present, whether, regardless of what he believes or where yeah, he's at. That's right. You know, God can bless his voice often far greater than some guy who's pretending to be a Christian in Christian music and living, you know, a, a extremely ungodly life. And, and we won't mention names. We've all, you know, I've been that guy and I know some of those guys. And, you know, God's, you know, it's a journey and we're all on this journey and hopefully God brings us all back to himself by the end of it. Um, anyway, uh, I'm just glad you guys did. I'm glad Brent had the idea and it all worked out. And, and, uh, but anyway, just listening to all your music, man, the vocals are just spot on. It's like, oh, thank you. Think of what I would have done had I stuck with my original direction in fact there's some things i heard that are not unlike some of the things we're doing now so yeah. i just think well you know it is coming back but we of course not gotten away from punk music and all that that was just a stepping stone but it's uh, too hard it's too hard on the body at this point <laughs> to try to get back into that <laughs> i have a feeling that your music and ours is is going to converge a lot more uh, in the future we always meet in the middle don't we absolutely we all meet in the middle at some point Hey, thanks for listening. Join me every Monday for new stories from the Christian music industry and beyond. If you want more content like this, along with a lot of great music, join me for Worship with Andy Chrisman, airing on 500 stations around the world every weekend. And when you get a sec, run over to my website, andychrisman.net, for information about my professional vocal coaching and an incredible new resource for worship pastors called The Worship Table. See you next time on the One Degree of Andy podcast.